Chapter One of East by West, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth Golding. East by West: A Journey in the Recess, Volume One, by Henry W. Lucy. Chapter One: Off Sandy Hook. There are few phrases in the English language more familiar than off Sandy Hook. It is a standing headline in most English newspapers, and the fact recorded in the court circular that the Queen walked out yesterday is not a more frequently reiterated piece of information than that yesterday such and such great steamers were off Sandy Hook. Like many other familiar phrases, it conveys to the mind no definite idea of the thing itself. It is only in the mighty leisure of a voyage across the Atlantic that one has time to formulate the question, what is Sandy Hook? Why rookery? as Miss Betsy Trotwood sharply asked David Copperfield when he mentioned the postal address of the step paternal home. Is Sandy Hook a curved instrument with which a great and friendly nation seizes incoming ships and gives them a pull on to New York after ascertaining the precise quality of the assisted emigrants on board? Is it a hook at all? And is it in any obtrusive way sandy? The questions must remain unsolved as far as this record is concerned for when we passed Sandy Hook it was midnight, and only two beacons indicated the world-famed spot. It was a magnificent night, with the moonlight shining over a smooth and glassy sea. About half-past eleven, when most of the passengers had retired to their staterooms, the stillness was broken by strains of music coming nearer and nearer. Presently a tug bore down upon us, and an excited crowd began to call on Brown. We had on board an inoffensive gentleman of that name travelling with his wife and young daughter. I now learned, with the feeling of regret that fills the mind when one finds too late he has been entertaining angels unawares, that Mr. Brown was the state printer of New York and that this was the Democratic Party who had worked ungrudgingly to obtain for him the office, and now welcomed his return from European travel. They had come to bear Mr. Brown off, an undertaking not without difficulty, seeing that we had not yet passed quarantine. But the Democratic Party of New York, when it puts its hand to the plough, makes its furrow straight and deep. It had obtained a special permit from the ordinarily inflexible city authorities to allow Mr. Brown, Mrs. Brown, and Miss Brown forthwith to land, in case there were no sickness on board the Britannic. They engaged a doctor at a special fee to visit the ship and give the necessary certificate. And so, with the band playing Home Sweet Home, the Democratic Party madly cheering, and violently shaking hands with the rescued passengers, the tug faded out of sight over the moonlit sea, and we were bereft of Brown. Fancy Mr. Hansard, who prints our parliamentary reports, 
or one of the firm of Spotswood, the Queen's printers, coming home from a trip to Antwerp or Australia, and either the Liberal Party or the Conservative Party running down to Gravesend with a string band to bear him home in triumph. I am afraid there is no doubt that by comparison we as a nation are lethargic in politics. We were over a thousand souls on board the Britannic, a fearful charge for the undertaking of any one man. For the first few days it weighed heavily on the spirits of our captain, and left him no time for those frivolities by which some captains of big passenger ships round off the sharp edge of official duty. No little tea-parties in the captain's room, no attentions to the fair, no chatting with the brave, and no assumption at the table of the cheery attitude of host. Till we were in mid-Atlantic, the captain's place at the head of the table was, in truth, rarely filled, except in the sense that Banquo sometimes sat at the banqueting board. Occasionally the passengers at dinner became aware of the presence of a tall figure carefully wrapped up, standing by the doorway surveying the festive scene. Sometimes it sat in the chair at the head of the captain's table, gloomily ate a dish, and disappeared. At others it shook its head and stalked forth, wondering how two hundred men and women could eat and drink when the wind was south-east by east-half-east, and at any moment something might happen at the lee scuppers. This is our captain, as he appears, when the stormy winds do blow, and we are near land, in the track of ships and of danger. But when fine weather comes, he thaws out, and though always preserving the self-recorded characteristic of the Duke of Wellington, inasmuch as he has no small talk, proves himself a pleasant gentleman, as popular with the passengers as he is with the more critical company of officers and crew. Of our precious freight of a thousand souls, only a little over two hundred are saloon passengers. The day before we left Liverpool, the city of Rome sailed on the same voyage, having on board four hundred and sixty-four saloon passengers. That means an immense amount of discomfort through all stages of the day. Overcrowded decks, a scramble in the ladies' saloon, a block in the smoking-room, and two courses of meals, one half waiting, while the other half breakfasts, lunches, and dines. It is a great temptation to ship-owners to make hay while the sun shines, and in the American passenger department it shines pretty hotly from April to September. On the day the Britannic left the Mersey, with her modest complement of 214 saloon passengers, the White Star Company had upon their books applications for an additional 900 passages. But the company have a rule which is kept at all costs. The spacious dining-room will seat two hundred and twenty guests, each having his or her appointed armchair and cubic measurement of table-room. Accommodation elsewhere being in proportion, there is no possibility of overcrowding. I heard a good story of two well-known Americans. They had been accustomed to visit Europe in May, and had competed with each other for the best berths on the Germanic or Britannic. 
A having been done by B two years in succession, thought he would be all right in 1884. Accordingly, in March 1883, he wrote engaging the captain's room and three of the best staterooms for the first voyage of the Germanic in May 1884. Flushed with the certainty of triumph, he incautiously mentioned the circumstance to a friend. Pleased with this stroke of real smartness, the friend spread the story, which came to the ears of B., who immediately cabled to Liverpool to secure for himself the captain's room and three best staterooms on the Germanic's first voyage out from New York in May 1884. When, in due course, A.'s letter arrived by mail, an answer was sent by return expressing profound regret that the berths named had been already allotted. This is the simple record of a business transaction, and I have seen both the telegram and the letter. There are very few English among the saloon passengers, only a score as far as I can count, one a member of the House of Commons, who, whilst doubtful as to the future leadership of his party, is pretty certain the bankruptcy bill will fail. There are two Italians who seat themselves outside the saloon, picturesquely draped in party-coloured silk rugs, and look unutterable woe. There are many Germans, and one Swede. There is a pretty Servian, and a grim Montenegrin, who have settled one phase of the Eastern question by marrying each other. They have brought with them a middle-aged servitor, who, if his tact were equal to his devotion, would be invaluable. The pretty Servian sits for the most part on deck, her fair face standing even the cruel test of seasickness. The one conviction deeply rooted in the mind of the middle-aged retainer is that if Madame will only eat, all will be well. He is always turning up with trays of refreshment, chiefly of a fatty, substantial kind. He has tried these himself and is well and happy. Why should not Madame try them? By a providential arrangement, Madame is spared sight of nearly fifty per cent of the viands, owing to their premature dispersal over the deck. As soon as the faithful servitor reaches the deck by the companionway, his eyes search out the object of his devotion, and his face lights up with a knowing smile. But a middle-aged servitor cannot fix his eyes on his lady's face and at the same time see the legs of projecting chairs, or be prepared for a sudden lurch of the ship. Over he goes, viands and all, and thus accident blasts the fruition of hope. This has come to pass so frequently that the approach of the middle-aged servitor with the inevitable plate of meat has come to be the signal for a general gathering up of skirts, and his passage is watched with an anxiety that could not be excelled by a crowd watching Blondin wheel a barrow across a tightrope. But he sees and knows nothing of this, his eyes being always fixed on the loved face, and his mind in a tremor of delicious anticipation of her delight when she discovers that under the metal plate cover he has a pork chop. 
Sometimes virtue is its own reward. Having in despair one day brought up an ice cream, and this too being gently but wearily declined, he publicly ate it, with many signs and gestures of immense satisfaction, a little accentuated by the facial contortions that follow upon incautiously eating ice in large spoonfuls. Of all nationalities, Americans vastly predominate, coming home singly or in families, having done Europe. With Americans of the present generation, European travel is a business undertaking, seriously gone into, without too carefully counting the cost, but with fixed resolve to have the money's worth. Four months is the correct time to take, and between May and September the American leaves untrodden few notable spots, whether on the continent or Great Britain. He, as it were, takes a series of half-hours with our best cities. The sailing of the mail steamers from Queenstown gives Americans an opportunity of seeing Ireland, which they are not slow to avail themselves of. Many cross over some days before the steamer starts, and having seen Dublin, the Phoenix Park, the Giant's Causeway, the Lakes of Killarney and the Blarney Stone, contentedly step on board at Queenstown, humming Nunc Dimittis. Short of making this special tour, they avail themselves to the fullest extent of the opportunities of seeing show-places afforded by the detention of the mail-steamer at Queenstown. "'Yes, I guess I did pretty well,' a young man from Troy said in the smoking-room on the night of sailing from Queenstown. "'I took the boat to Cork, saw Queenstown Harbour, took train to Blarney, went over the castle and kissed the stone, came back to Cork and did the exhibition, took an outside car, drove all over the city, and whilst we were waiting for the mails to be put aboard, bought a carved oak walking-stick and a shillelagh. This seemed pretty well for a chance-flying visit, but there was a discontented tone in the young man's voice, and a look in his face that indicated a suspicion there was something he had omitted. I gathered from wide conversation among these frank and hearty people that for them the chief attractions in England are the Tower of London, the City of Chester, Westminster Abbey, Shakespeare's Tomb, and the Royal Stables. Amongst the sights of Queenstown, not entered in any recognised guide-book, what moved the Americans most was the process of getting the Royal Mails on board the tender. The arrangements for the transmission of the mails are in the same primitive condition they were when the mails first went by the Queenstown route. Possibly things go all right up to Cork, but thereafter follow arrangements that would be incredible except from the lips of an eye-witness. The distance from Cork to Queenstown by the direct line is fifteen miles, which in the case of the Royal Mail would be covered in as many minutes by the English Midland or Great Western Railway. The Irish train carrying the mails, with a colossal steamer and a thousand passengers impatiently awaiting them, stops at nearly every station on the way down, and arrives breathless and puffing in thirty-five minutes. Then the screaming part of the farce begins. 
Instead of swift, well-horsed mail carts that would cover the intervening space between the railway station and the wharf in a few minutes, a melancholy procession of heavy one-horse carts are backed in, and when loaded, leisurely meander down to the wharf. As the yard and entrance admit of only one cart at a time, an empty one has to be cleared out before a full one is brought up. A gang of about a dozen men are ready to shoulder the sacks and trot off with them to the tender, a force sufficiently strong. But there is only one man on the cart to place the sacks on the men's shoulders, and the stream is constantly dammed, three or four men regularly waiting till they can be loaded. It seems so obvious a thing to take off one of the gang of porters and put him on the cart to help to load that it is presumable the step is not taken only because such increase of expedition would be out of keeping with the general arrangements. When, as happened on the day we sailed, the Australian and New Zealand mails swell the consignment up to nearly four hundred sacks, a delay ensues equal to a considerable money value. An American of a statistical turn of mind calculated that if the loss in the value of time to the owners of the Britannic, to the consignees of freight, and to the thousand passengers were added together, it would amount to a sum sufficient to pay the cost of telegraphing all the letters in the mailbags. That is a calculation evidently made upon imperfect data by a man deeply moved at this evidence of the ineptitude of a played-out nation. But the amount of mere money loss would be sufficient in a year to cover any reasonable expenditure upon obvious ways of improvement. In packing up for a long journey, the question of books presents itself with persistency. But books take up much room and weigh heavy. Moreover, it is well known that in the United States you can buy, at prices varying from sevenpence halfpenny to tenpence, the choicest works of modern English literature. It is not without some feeling of shamefacedness that one purchases at this rate the works of dear friends, knowing that they are being robbed of their dues. But what would you? When you go to Rome, you must do as the Romans do, and similarly in the United States soothed by the certainty that a great and enlightened people would not systematically pursue a particular practice if it were actually dishonest. With this prospect at an early stage of the journey of an unlimited supply of books in cheap and portable form, it seems sufficient if one could take from home a compendious little volume with something in it for all possible emergencies. This is to be found in English as she is spoke, that precious volume with which Senor Pedro Carolino has dowered the world. Turning up the page where instructions are given for embarking oneself, I find the hints brief but to the point. Don't you fear the privateers? asks the inquiring mind. I jest of them answers the dauntless traveller. My vessel is armed in man of war. I have a vigilant and courageous equipage, and the ammunitions don't want me its. Never have you not done wreck, the inquirer proceeds, 
determined to make his friend as uncomfortable as possible on starting. That it has arrived me twice. And here the conversation ends, it being plainly impossible to flutter this calm, courageous soul. There is, however, one danger of the deep not here alluded to, which I have found in the realisation more terrible than pirates, storm or fog. This is the presence of an infant of tender years in an adjoining stateroom. That a passenger should chance to be thus situated is not a matter of great surprise, nor would it in ordinary circumstances be one of just complaint. The ship is swarming with children, from infants in arms, to a lusty contingent who, when the deck is wet, as not infrequently happens, take possession of our chairs and run them up and down the slippery boards. It seems to be the correct thing for American infants to be teethed on the Atlantic or weaned on a White Star liner. During the first days of the voyage I looked for a sensible diminution of numbers among the elder children owing to natural causes. The boundless hospitality of the ship concentrates itself in a succession of mighty efforts at half-past seven in the morning, at noon and at five o'clock, to fill these children up. To see them at breakfast, dinner, or tea, it would be reasonably supposed that the effort would be more than successful. But ten minutes after any meal, you shall behold a cluster of small boys and girls at the foot of the staircase, wheedling the second steward, a man of infinite, if mistaken, kindness, into giving them handfuls of gingerbread, pocketfuls of nuts, or plates loaded with a dubious confection, highly popular in this community under the name of Eccles Cakes. I never pass this ever-changing group at the foot of the staircase without apprehension of coming in contact with fragments of a burst boy or an exploded girl. But nothing ever happens of a fatal kind. They eat all day, sleep all night, and turn up on deck early in the morning to skate the chairs, which, in addition to running the risk of breaking them, has the recommendation of waking up anyone asleep in the berths below. These are general blessings diffused throughout the ship's company. My particular boon is something over and above, a special addition to the common lot. My baby never leaves the stateroom to go on deck. Sometimes, in the dead, unhappy night, I find it hard to resist the wish that it were otherwise. One might volunteer to take him for a while from the wearied nurse's arms, show him over the side of the vessel the wild joy of the Atlantic waves, and then, who knows, a babe is never safe in inexperienced hands, and on the following night an unwonted peace might brood over one quarter of the ship. This terrible infant is not only always in his cabin, but is always wailing, after all not the most serious part of the infliction. His entourage is German, and everyone who has met Germans travelling is painfully aware of their vocal peculiarities. 
I remember one quiet autumn evening sitting on the terrace of an hotel at Baveno. Far away across the broad Lago Maggiore shone the white walls of Palanza with its big hotel. Suddenly the stillness was broken by a murmur, as of a distant multitude engaged in deadly conflict. What's that? I asked my companion. An emert? Oh, no, he answered carelessly. They've finished dinner at the hotel over there, and the Germans have come out on the terrace for a little friendly conversation. Palanza has come alongside Baveno now and sometimes when the family are conversing there is a difficulty in hearing the shrill wail of the infant, but only then. Two or three sessions ago a question was raised in the House of Commons as to the steerage accommodation in Atlantic steamers outward bound. Statements were made, purporting to be the result of personal experience, which greatly shocked public opinion and, though discredited by a report subsequently made at the instance of the Board of Trade, something of that impression doubtless still lingers. It occurred to me that the present was a favourable opportunity of making investigation. On Thursday, being just a week out, I found a quiet and full opportunity of spending some time in the steerage. There are 708 steerage passengers on the Britannic, apparently exiles from all the kingdoms of Europe. As far as possible, they camp out in nations, the Scandinavians having their quarters, the Germans theirs, the Finns theirs, the Irish theirs, and so on through the record. With the exception of married couples who have their special quarters, the women are all aft and the men all forward. Where the married couples live, their berths are set out in blocks, each decently curtained from the other. In none of the berths is bedding provided, emigrants bringing what they deem requisite in that way, which in some cases, notably that of the Finns, does not reach extravagant proportions. The single women sleep on bunks, each containing five berths, one tier above the other, as in the saloon staterooms. The arrangements for the single men are of the same character. Both forward and aft there are broad gangways providing free circulation, and portholes wide open at the time of my visit giving abundant light. The floor was neatly sanded, and the bunks still preserved the severely scoured condition in which they left port. One of the things which most strikingly divide new and old order in the matter of ocean steamships is the care for ventilation. We had a rough time of it for the first five days out of Liverpool, and our stateroom was once occupied for forty hours at a stretch. In the fortieth hour it was as fresh as in the first. The system here adopted is on the broad principle in vogue in the House of Commons, the best ventilated chamber in the world. A constant supply of fresh air is pumped in just above the level of the floor, and working its way upward as it becomes warmed, passes out through an open cornice in the ceiling. In the steerage and forward on board the Britannic, there is an automatic ventilating apparatus, which I will not attempt to describe, but which, in conjunction with the wind sails, always freighted with fresh air blowing over the Atlantic, 
keeps up a supply that must be subtly invigorating to the denizens from crowded cities, and perhaps a little embarrassing to the Finns. As to food, the boundless hospitality which reigns in the saloon is here diffused. Perhaps for the first time in their lives, these seven hundred men, women, and children live in a land where it is always meal-time. There are three regulation meals on the day of my visit thus provided for. Breakfast, Irish stew, fresh bread and butter, tea and coffee. Dinner, soup, fresh beef and potatoes, stewed apples and rice. Tea, fresh bread and butter, tea and gruel. It is, as a pale-faced man said to me with a gleam of tender recollection in his eyes, cut and come again. Everyone can have as many helpings as he pleases, and towards the middle of the voyage, when they find their sea-legs, they please in a matter truly appalling. Lest they should feel hungry between whiles, there are three large open barrels set by the main gangway. One contains biscuits, another rusks, and a third butter. At any hour of the day or night these may be dipped into. There is always throughout the day tea and coffee always going. From time to time a barrel of herrings is opened, and anon a barrel of apples, into which all are free to dip. How all this can be done at four guineas a head, the current rate of steerage passage, is a problem which I trust the owners have satisfactorily solved. At the time of my visit the passengers were all on deck, all but seven. These were a wandering white kitten, two canaries in a cage in the steerage, three thrushes in a large wicker cage forehead, and in one of the berths a lusty infant six weeks old, laughing and crowing, and evidently in a state of profound satisfaction with the world as far as he had yet seen it. End of chapter 1